This is Rumble, and I am Michael Moore. Thank you for joining me uh, today on Rumble. I have a guest with me that I've been hoping to have on at some point here in my first year or so, and uh, he's an author that I have a great deal of respect for. And he's going to join us here momentarily because I want to talk about a number of things that that he has written and is now still writing about the fact that the the so-called peaceful transfer of power did not take place. It happened with violence uh, for, I think, probably maybe the first time in our history. And the violence isn't over. I feel that way. He has written about this. And we all need to be not only aware of it, but on guard and, and insisting that um, the new administration do what needs to be done with those who would cause harm to their fellow Americans and to our democratic process. In the midst of this uh, going on and Trump uh, making his return this coming weekend when he speaks at the uh, uh, is it the CPAC, uh, Conservative Political Action Committee, uh, down in Orlando, Florida, it won't feel good. Let me just tell you that in advance. It won't <laughs> to see that he has not gone away. He is not just on the golf course. And this week we saw the USA Today poll that said that 73% of Republicans believe that Joe Biden is not the legitimate elected president of the United States, 73% of Republicans. And I believe it also said that, that uh, 47, 48% of Republicans, um, if there were something called the Trump party, would vote for the Trump party in the next election, not the Republican party, only 27%. Of Republicans said they would vote for the candidate from the Republican Party if they had the choice to vote for the Trump Party. Uh, so we're not out of the woods. You already know this. You saw the 74 million votes that Trump got after Trump showed them what he was made of for four straight years. And 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 that resulted in him uh, getting 11 million more votes than four years ago. So we're going to talk about that and also what the the death of Rush Limbaugh, what that means, and how did all this sort of happen? So when when you look at the totality of historian Rick Perlstein's work, it becomes obvious that events such as the presidency of Donald Trump and the violent cop-killing mob of January 6th were not random occurrences that just happened out of nowhere. As I said in Fahrenheit 11.9, Donald Trump did not just fall from the sky. These events and others that we've been living through in recent years are the logical end conclusions when you look at what's been happening in this country since its founding, and certainly since the modern conservative movement took shape. And no one has documented this history of the modern conservative movement better than Rick Perlstein. His books include Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus. I, I was around for that one too, although a little tight, but I was, I was paying attention. <laughs> His uh, next book was Nixon Land, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. Then came The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. And his latest is Reagan Land, America's Right Turn, 1976. To 1980. And I won't go through and list all the various awards that these books attained, uh, whether it's the LA Book Critics Award, whether it was uh, the number of times that the New York Times listed his books as one of the best books of the year, and on and on and on. So I encourage everybody, if you want to really know how we got here, these four books will answer that question. I am pleased to have on Rumble today, historian. Rick Perlstein joining me. Rick, how are you? Humbled. Uh, you know, you've been uh, someone who's been in my life for a long time, you know, since 1989 when Roger and me came out. Uh, and I very rarely, I've had the privilege of talking to a lot of famous, distinguished people, but I've rarely been nervous for an interview. Oh, no, <laughs> yeah, no, no. With a glass of rum in front of me. Oh, because, no. You know, uh, you're a guy who, you know. I'm sorry, we haven't had you on yet in this uh, uh, initial year, year and two months that uh, that 
we've uh, been operating here is Rumble. But as we we are approaching this uh, next week here, our 25 millionth uh, download of this podcast, and and to have you on in the run up uh, to that, I'm very very happy about this. So let's just let's dive right into this and and maybe deal. Let's deal with uh, a little bit of the recent events of January. Take us through how we ended up here because I love your version of this. And, and I, and I want to get into talking about what's going on right now, but I think for the people listening, especially younger listeners to, to hear this history that you really then can understand the context of, of everything we're facing right now. Yeah. I've been actually taking it back these days to the 18th century, which I never, let's start there. That's yeah, a good yeah. century. And it's constitution, right? It's like the, the South was like, we're not going to join your little country unless you basically, submit to our demands, which give us, you know, veto power over the government of the United States. That's the three-fifths clause in the Senate. And uh, where they the, wanted, they, where, where black people were only counted as, as three-fifths of a human. For, correct? For, for, you know, how many, how many Congress members each state got. And right. Yeah, so they use it. So we're going to preserve slavery no matter what, you know, no matter how much power we have within democracy. Right. So all through the 19th century, you know, the South is like, basically, we're going to invent new states that are slave states so we can keep control of Congress. And when that didn't work, they started a war. And that's been the basic template of American history, you know, all through, you know, Reconstruction and the 20th century. Did you, were you, were you aware, Michael, probably you were, that until 1936, in order to become the presidential nominee of the Democratic Party, which was the party, you know, that was this weird coalition of the North and the slave and the you know segregation of the South. You had to have two thirds of the votes, so that basically gave the South a veto power. Over, oh, I, did, I did not know that. No. Yeah, so basically, you had to pledge your that you weren't going to interfere with white supremacy if you wanted to be a Democratic presidential candidate, and that finally ended in 1936. But then came you know World War II, and you know all these African Americans came back from you know risking their life in the country. And they're like, we're not going to stand for this anymore. And this, the Democratic Party basically threw in their lot as the party of civil rights. You know, um, Hubert Humphrey said, you know, it's time to move out of the shadow of states' rights and into the sunshine of human rights. And the South walked out of the convention. And, you know, Brown versus Board of Education happened. And the same thing that happened in the 19th century happened, which was basically like, if they weren't able to control the country, and have a veto power over white supremacy through political means, they use violent means, right? And, you know, that was all the stuff we see in all those historical documentaries, fire hoses, police dogs, um, you know, sheriffs beating people when they tried to walk for March for Voting Rights. And that's where Barry Goldwater comes in, basically. The, the Republican Party chooses in 1964 uh, although really it was kind of the reactionary element in the Republican Party that used all sorts of chicanery to, you know, basically make a minority position into the majority position. They nominated a guy who voted against the Civil Rights Act, you know, voted for states to have the right to pass laws to say, you know, you had to go to this bathroom and the other people had to go to the other bathroom, right? You had, the, you had to go to the back of the bus. And the thing I've been telling people the, the the quotation, the one sentence that explains exactly how to understand American history ever since was one of Barry Goldwater's delegates from Texas said after Goldwater won that nomination, we just moved the Mason-Dixon line clear up to Canada. In other words, we made Southern politics, which was based on conspiracy theories. The civil rights movement was inspired and directed from Moscow, was based on totalitarianism, a one-party state. Uh, was based on white supremacy. We turned that into the national politics of an entire political party. And the same dynamic kept on obtaining, right? If they could, you know, manage to preserve white supremacy and the kind of corporate, you know, kind of dominance through politics, through gerrymandering, through the Senate, uh, they were perfectly happy to do that. And then what we saw on January 6th, 2021 was that same pattern playing out again, that when they weren't able to preserve it through politics, they did it through violence. Uh, you know, this is, this is the same sort of people, right? The same idea, the same energy 
that saw, you know, abolitionist newspaper editors in my own state of Illinois in the 1830s uh, lynched, right? Their printing presses thrown into the Mississippi River. This is the same idea. And uh, the idea that, you know, Donald Trump, you know, enunciated when he went down that escalator in Trump Tower and said, Mexico is sending its rapists, that crazy conspiratorial idea that anything that disturbs white supremacy must be some conspiracy that, you know, swore the outsiders are visiting upon us. And, you know, luckily, you know, uh, we, we defeated it this time, but it never really goes away. It never goes away. Uh, Liberals often declare uh, these ordeals of American white supremacy over every time, you know, the, the side of liberalism wins. But as you say, you know, these people are girding for their next battle. They're girding for the next battle. And we have to be very, very vigilant. So in this recent thing that you wrote that don't think that the violence is over. Don't think this is a one-off. January 6th was not just a one-off and Trump himself isn't ready to go away. And they a lot of those who participated in January 6th have written in social media and elsewhere. They consider that day, uh, it'll be a historic day for them. Yeah. It's, it's there almost through July 4th that they, that was a victory. They, they made the, and there's video of watching senators run, run, run for your life. Cause we, the people are in charge. Right. And the whole point of having a constitution, right. Is uh, constitutions are machines for governing without force right? That's the whole point of the rule of law, that, you know, without that, it's just the person with the biggest club, right? And that's the kind of politics these folks are embracing. And, you know, Donald Trump's whole, you know, kind of vision of the universe that, like you say, half the Republican Party or more is embracing, is this idea that anyone who doesn't pledge fealty to Donald Trump immediately casts themselves into the outer darkness as part of this dark conspiracy to destroy not Donald Trump, but you, right? You Mm. as an American citizen. Uh, And um, the Republican party has been pretty much complicit all the way, right? One of the things I write about in, you know, this series of four books and thousands of pages was the careful kind of negotiation that the Republican party has always followed between a politics of respectability that they could kind of present to the gatekeeping elites of the country balanced by this sort of understanding that if they weaponize the darkest impulses in human behavior, uh, they can maintain power. This is, just to take an example of the balance, uh, George W. Bush, you know, weaponizing the anger at 9-11 in order to start a war in Iraq. But at the same time, he balances that out by saying Islam is a religion of peace. You know, this is Mitt Romney, whose, you know, dad was one of the great Republican liberals, George Romney, uh, saying no one ever asked to, you know, see my birth certificate. So, right, it doesn't start with Trump. But what Trump does is he rings down the curtain on that pattern, which they kind of like have to balance the kind of demagogic stuff with the respectable stuff. And to see the rest of the Republican Party, you know, that in 2016 considered him this clown, you know, con- you know, were perfectly willing to go on the record and saying, you know, Donald Trump would destroy the Republican Party, destroy the Republican movement. To see a Lindsey Graham, you know, uh, face a African-American opponent in 2020, do you remember this during the, the, the debate he had with his opponent in which he said uh, African-American men can be perfectly content that they're safe in South Carolina as long as they're not liberal? That kind of lynching language. Wow, yeah. That, yeah. They're, that, that, that they, they, they see it as kind of like a permission. You know, they feel liberated. And, uh, you know, the problem is, as you know, they gave up on having a majority coalition long ago. They're trying to govern in, in the same way that the South did in the 19th century by kind of gaming the rules, you know, one party state, the Republican, the, the conservative reactionary uh, part of the country 
you know, we're always able to use uh, the loopholes that you know, kind of derange our democratic system in order to maintain party power, whether it was, you know, uh, maintaining control of congressional committees in the, you know, 20th century, or whether it was uh, suppressing the vote in the 21st century. The, so in just reading this, uh, this latest thing that you wrote, you you're very concerned, you're concerned about our, our future here. And I don't mean distant future. I mean, the near future. And I think millions of Americans would agree with you, but are also um, beside themselves, not knowing what to do about it or how to deal with it when it happens again. I mean, what do we do? What do we do right now? Right. Because the threat remains. You know, oddly enough, I'm, you know, maybe it's just because I'm an optimistic person. I'm pretty optimistic about the situation right now. And one of the, one of the weird ironies of history, and I'm very much, you know, into the ironies of history, you know, you never can, you know, you never can predict what's going to happen next is that, you know, Joseph Robinette Biden has this remarkable opportunity to kind of educate the public about what the government can do to um, make life better for ordinary Americans, right? I mean, literally, he's in a struggle uh, to allow the grandparents of America to hug their grandchildren, right? That's what that's what the COVID vaccine vaccination is about, mm, right? Right, right. right. Uh, you know, uh, the idea that you know governing well in the in the interest of the vast majority of the people, you know, in the face of things like. Uh, the smoking ruins that, you know, kind of neoliberal economics has visited upon the state of Texas, right? Here comes, you know, Joe Biden saying, I don't care that you didn't vote for me. You know, I'm going to declare a disaster area and use the powers of the federal government to, you know, literally save your lives, right? It's not going to convince everyone because, you know, it is very cult-like, right? I mean, one of the things that, you know, you mentioned Rush Limbaugh. One of the things that he, you know, taught his tens of millions of listeners was that anything a liberal Democrat does that seems to be humane is actually a con, right? It's, 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 it's actually the opposite, right? It's like the devil is the great deceiver, right? The Democrats are the great deceivers. But he's not going to convince everyone. But on the margin, right, they're going to be people who kind of peel off and kind of be decoyed be programmed from this awful, hateful politics. And, you know, a, a place like Texas, you know, really seems to be on the cusp of, you know, basically changing from a red state to a blue state. And we have this very bizarre system in America, as you know, right? Where like, you know, we only have two parties. In order to have any power, you have to um, win 50% plus one of the electorate. Every other civilized country in the world has, you know, mostly a parliament parliamentary system where if you win 40%, you get 40% of the, you know, you get 40% of the legislative seats. But in America, you have to have a majority. And once you kind of shade in from, you know, the minority position and the majority position, then suddenly, you know, you can control Congress, you know, uh, you can begin to appoint people to the judiciary who are not just acting in the interests of, you know, the corporate elite. And, you know, we're in a position to actually show people what the government does, right? That the government can make the world a better place. It can govern well in the, in the interest of the vast majority of the people and doesn't have to kind of use these kind of culture war fantasies that, you know, really have nothing to do with what the government does every day, which is just basically like ordinary civil servants, you know, just kind of figuring out how to, you know, kind of make life, make people's lives better. Right. So, you know, I'm 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 hopeful. And, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, kind of what we can do, obviously, we have to hold Biden's feet to the fire, you know, Um, but uh, he's kind of going retro. (laughs) He's old enough that he remembers, you know, what it meant for a Democrat to actually be a Democrat. And, you know, so far, he's, um, you know, appointing a lot of very progressive people, the kind of people I used to read about in my liberal magazines. And they're doing the right thing for the most part. Yeah, I've been pleasantly uh, surprised um, at how well he's done and how well it's going. It doesn't mean I don't have my concerns and criticisms. Uh, As but, we must. Yes, and, and we must express them. Uh, but I think, I think by expressing them, I think we'll actually 
uh, people, some people in his administration will listen to us. And that's, as I've said from the beginning since November, really, uh, it's better to have the ball and be on offense. <laughs> Even if I personally don't have the ball, if the team has the ball, <laughs> I'm okay with that. And, and uh, I have a better chance of, of uh, getting, um, you know, getting us to a place where we need to be. So Biden, I think you put that beautifully, that he basically, right now, his mission is to see that all grandparents can go back to hugging their grandchildren. That I think that is at the essence of of of, of him. Yeah. Okay, so he's not a great intellectual thinker on the left, but you know, maybe what we need right now is a hug. Maybe our kids need a hug yeah. from their grandparents. And 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 we'll take this step by step because we have to get rid of this. And and I love your optimism too, considering you're you're the one who wrote the book on Goldwater, yeah. Nixon. Reagan and the horror that we've had to deal with because of their policies. And yet you're an optimist. But I, as soon as you said that, I thought, you know, I gave the statistic uh, this week of 73% of Republicans don't believe that Biden is the actual elected president, but it, but it also showed that 17, nearly 20% of Republicans believe that Biden is the duly elected president of the United States. So already wow. at 20% of his 74 million, that's what they are only like 40% of the electorate, right? Yes. I mean, kind of yes. Thing, right. But I'm just oh, saying yeah, there's, there's 15, 15 million of the 74 million that voted for him disagree with him and, and the crazies who say that Biden's not the president. That's 15 million Trump voters disagree with that thinking and, and are, and are willing to say, yes, he is my president of the United States of America. Yeah. And whoever his idea was to have some kind of like old white grandpa, you know, who, you know, you've ever heard this, this phrase that, you know, Joe Biden's superpower is that whatever he says immediately sounds like the kind of reasonable center of American opinion. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. But I think, but, but also I think it was Axios that wrote how his, that may be his position and how he's positioned himself uh, and, and those are his words, but his actions right. are to the left. Right. His actions are progressive. Constantly. And, right. well, I mean, that's, and that's, that's the weird thing about it. It's like, you know, um, you know, I, I, one, one of the things that kind of, you know, my New Year's resolution was to increase operational trust between the center and the left of the, of the Democratic Party and even people who are to the left of the Democratic Party, right? Because you know, civilization is in the balance, right? I mean, we're literally talking about the fate of the planet here. Right. And, you know, like we get these like nominations, like, oh, wow, the guy who's, you know, the, you know, the, the, the council, the chief counsel for the office of management and budget, which sounds like this incredibly boring bureaucratic job, you know, that has, you know, like wh who the hell is that? You know, it turns out to be this guy who's like this, you know, law professor at the university of Michigan, Sam Bagenstos, who's mm -hmm. been like, you know, this champion of civil rights for decades, you know, yeah. and to see them kind of like inside the tent, you know, pissing out instead of out that outside the tent pissing in, you know, look, like I say, it's all on our, it's, it's, it's up to us, right? I mean, we, we have to be vigilant. Uh, but, you know, once people realize, you know, once people are educated, you know, that, you know, the force of the American government can be a, can, can be something that can make their lives better in a material way. Mm. It's very hard, you know, and even, 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 even the kind of nomination hearings we've had for, you know, kind of uh, Merrick Garland, for example, first of all, this is a guy who, you know, even though he's hardly a leftist, he cut his teeth prosecuting the militia movement in the 1990s. Right. 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 And this is a guy, you know, you saw his, you saw this kind of very, um, diffident attempt on the part of the Republican senators to kind of paint him in the corner using their kind of culture war narratives. But it was really quite half-hearted, right? I mean, you got to remember politicians are very um, selfish people and they're kind of desperate for uh, approval. And, you know, they're not getting enough approval from the crazy stuff. And, you know, I mean, look at Mitt Romney, right? A guy with Michigan roots, right? Mitt Romney proposed a child allowance for every American who has a child that mm -hmm. is actually more generous than the Biden administration proposed. I can live with that. 
I can live with the Republicans trying to outbid Democrats on progressive policy. You know, that's the kind of stuff we saw in the 1950s and in the 1960s, you know? Right, this guy right. is clearly a guy with his finger in the wind. You know, I wrote about how in 2004, when he announced his, um, when he announced his presidential campaign, he did it in, uh, at, at, at the, at the um, at Dearborn Village, and he did it in front of an electric car. Mm-hmm. And he started talking about his dad, who you remember, you know, took on Detroit and its gas-guzzling dinosaurs. You know, by 2008, he's, you know, a global warming denier. But these people are putting their fingers in the wind, you know, who are right. these kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, bellwethers of opinion. Some of them are willing to kind of join us in the 21st century. And that's very encouraging. Right, right. Yeah, no, Mitt's dad was. Uh, he was he a good came one. Back. Yeah, he came back. They took a tour of Vietnam. He was thinking of running for president. Yes. Uh, came back and said the generals there tried to brainwash me. Which was the truth. Which is the truth. And that and we needed to get out of there. And 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 they the the Republicans essentially just ganged up on him and he had to drop out and not run for president. Uh, because right. he because was he said that the Vietnam War if you in my book Nixon Land I, I actually quote a lot more that he said about the, the Vietnam War and he basically yes. said, you know, the truth that this was a con. Was and a that con. you know, this was basically we were intervening in a civil war and we had no military business being there. We were gonna lose. And, you know, um, he was destroyed for it. And that was one of the reasons I think Mitt Romney became such a cautious politician, right? Mm, Yeah. Uh, But he's a cautious politician and cautious politicians are the ones to watch because they're the ones who tend to turn on a dime when public opinion shifts. Right. And uh, that's what we're seeing. And maybe the rest of the, you know, people who are, you know, casting their lot with Donald Trump and the insurrectionists. Um, maybe they're the ones who are going to be laughed at in the in in you know the the long durée of history. Of course, they're also the ones who have the guns. So that's, again, we have why we have to be vigilant. What? But not just vigilant. What else? What do? What does the Biden administration? What do they need to do to protect us from what I believe are probably thousands and thousands of right. people heavily armed? Yeah. And uh, they you have know, the, people in jail, right? I mean, it's yeah. Like if, if you commit a felony, you know, you can't own a gun, right? And I think that that can really put the fear of God in some of these people, you know, and you already see they're squealing like pigs, right? I mean, they're right. saying, oh, Donald Trump made me do it. Yada, 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 yada. You know, it's like, you know, a, a hanging, Dr. Johnson said, tends to concentrate the mind, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and people point out that these are the people who believe that there's some kind of deep state. Well, there is a deep state, right? It's the deep state we created after 9-11. It's the national security state. And they're running into the buzzsaw, right? And they deserve to in a lot of ways. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, you know, into like, you know, locking up people up and throwing away the key and burying, burying them out of the jail. But, you know, the fact that lots of, you know, white people are experiencing when African-Americans have, you know, experienced since the beginning of this country, which is basically you know, uh, the full force of the government, you know, uh, that's going to have an effect. And um, I think prosecutions are very important. It would have been great, you know, if they'd also prosecuted, you know, the bankers who, you know, uh, you know, made it impossible for people to own a home, right? We blew that opportunity. Uh, They did get away, but they did get away on January 6th, though they got away with it in the way African-Americans wouldn't have gotten away if African-Americans right, had stormed the Capitol but, building. But at least we're talking about it, right? It's yeah. like that, that yes. image of what happened when a peaceful Black Lives Matters protesters, you know, showed at the, the, the Capitol, this cordon of, you know, armed to the teeth riot police on the steps of the Capitol. It's a teachable movement, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think a lot of people are kind of beginning to grasp how white supremacy functions in everyday American politics. So that's progress too. You're right. That's very true. I'm, I'm the, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to harshing your your pessimistic mojo. But. No, no, <laughs> no. I it's it's actually I'm channeling the few hundred thousand people that might be listening to this right now, um, who are feeling that way, who are feeling despair, and who are depressed about what's going on, and um, and are very nervous about what these angry, violent men will do. And um, and what will happen at the polls next year? Right, because we will, we will not not only have not removed all the voter suppression that exists, yeah. but they're passing laws right now in these red states right. to really clamp down 
Right. So, it's hard to cheat if it's not close. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's again, that's another um it's I think that's why people wish that there that it hadn't been so close, frankly, in uh, in November. Uh, yeah. Because maybe this would have gone away, but it's not it's not going to go away. So what are we, what are we going to do to protect ourselves, to protect our institutions uh, and, and to have a free and fair election um, uh, next year? So all of, all of these things and me personally, no, I mean, my, I don't know if you call it optimism. I just, I just want to remove every Republican Senator uh, with the exception of those um, who, you know, didn't participate in the sedition. Who actually honored their oath of office. Yes. To honor the constitution. And even they have to be removed for other reasons. <laughs> they have to be removed, in my opinion. Right. For, yeah, it's uh, so know. funny. Richard, uh, who was it? Richard Burr, the guy from North Carolina, yeah. who voted for conviction. And I like yeah. went on his Wikipedia page, and I was like, "Oh my god, he was one of like the three Republican senators who voted against the Stock Act, which outlaws <laughs> insider training by members of Congress." Like, how crazy is this guy? You know, no, it's completely crazy. But he did one good thing. It's kind of like. Thing. Okay. Okay. But he's leaving the Senate anyways, but, right. but you know, one third of the Senate is up for a reelection next year and uh, we need to make some headway here, but, but I, I don't want to let the passing of Rush Limbaugh uh, oh, yeah. go, go by here without, because you also you, in your books have written about him through the years and his impact and influence on, on building a very different kind of uh, Republican party uh, and he holds he holds a lot of the responsibility for that in, in I was going to say in his hands, but I don't think he's with us. I don't know what, what I don't know if he was buried. Yeah, it's or really interesting. Anything. I actually was doing a little doing a little research for this interview, and I saw that the the that uh, you know Roger and me came out in 1989, right? Yeah. And that was the same year in which I was working for my family business as a delivery driver all summer long, and I listened to all four hours of Rush Limbaugh. For that entire summer after my freshman year of college, right. so I've been, you know, I've been a, a following Rush Limbaugh forever, and I think the most important thing he did, most important thing he accomplished for his, you know, twenty million listeners who called themselves Ditto Heads, right? By the way, there's a word for, in German for that, the Führer Prinzip. You follow someone because of the leader, no matter what they say. Oh. I, I, I indelibly remember after. Um, Barack Obama gave his speech to a joint session of Congress in 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 in, in the, the opening weeks of his election after he after after his inauguration, after he signed the stimulus bill after the financial collapse, and it gave a tax cut to ninety five percent of the American people. And I remember when one of Rush Limbaugh's callers, and he was a very good at educating his callers about how to think. You know, people really kind of deferred to him as the person who would explain to them how they were supposed to act as citizens. And one of them said, well, why are we supposed to hate this guy? He's giving us 95% of us a tax cut. And I remember indelibly exactly what Rush Limbaugh said in response. He said, don't believe anything he said. He means the opposite, right? So he was kind of putting down a marker for his 20 million listeners that there's nothing a Democrat can do that isn't actually a con decide, you know, in, intended to kind of harm you, right? Nothing. And, uh, you know, truth doesn't matter. Reality doesn't matter. And the fact that he's leaving behind that as his, you know, bequeathal to the, you know, American citizenry, uh, we have a lot, we have a, a, a lot of recovery to do because those people were um, brainwashed, right? By something that was very similar to a cult. What will they do with, without him now, with Limbaugh being gone? Well, there are plenty of little Limbaugh's, right? I mean, one of the things, you know, you know about, you know, how, how radio works, right? I mean, radio stations realize that if they have a solid wall of, you know, conservative talkers, they can, you know, make a lot of money. And, you know, this, we still have Mark Levin, you know, we still have uh, uh, Michael Savage, who, you know, is basically like, a you know, uh, uh, just as his name implies, a savage, Right. And these guys are pumping the same poison into the airwaves that they always did. And the only response we can do is now that we control the government is governing well and compassionately in the interests of the broad majority. And we're not going to brainwash. We're not going to, you know, deprogram all of them. But, you know, we can shake some people off at the margins and especially the young people. It's like when I think about, you know, young folks 
you know, teenagers watching the, the impeachment trial, right? And seeing, you know, these old white men on the Republican side, you know, seeming like, you know, people who didn't do their homework and were just kind of making it up as they go along, mm-hmm. as opposed to this kind of multicultural, you know, brilliant group of people who argued for the Democrats. It's very hard, I think, for young people to kind of identify with the clowns. And, uh, you know, we have this generation coming up and the Democratic Party has to basically um, put a lot of effort into winning their loyalty. Because when you win someone's loyalty is when you're young, you, you get their loyalty for the rest of their life. So they have to do things. I, I would love to see Biden turn the corner on uh, forgiving student loans, right? That would be a very important thing that he can do. And, uh, you know, I think that um, people have to be turned into uh, loyal members of the Democratic Party but Democrats, in order, they have to hold up their end of the the bargain. They have to deliver the goods, and uh, they're pretty sensitive. Like I like to say, you know, politicians are very—they're um, the people who want to be loved by everyone. So the, when the young, when the, the Greece, yeah, the, the town hall last week—I don't know if you saw it with Biden. Mm, and, I missed and, it. Yeah. So there was a young woman, young adult woman. Um, who said that your $10,000 forgiveness on student loans is not enough. We are all in horrible debt. Many, yeah. many people upwards to a hundred thousand or more. Yeah. And she said, it's gotta be 50,000. And he just, he grabbed the mic and he said, no way. He just like shot her right down. And it was like, Oh no, don't that's say, say, yeah. as, say as kind grandpa, not the, not grandpa yeah. Clint Eastwood in, in Grand Torino where right. you know, get off my lawn or I'll shoot you. Um, right. And it's, it's, I hope like maybe somebody showed that to him or just said, no, no, listen, this is not you. Yeah. yeah. She wasn't asking for some kind of weird handout here. This is right. These, this young generation in their twenties is never going to be able to buy a house or or live a normal life. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I mean, I I give a lot of credit for, you know, kind of, you know, changing from a neoliberal to a liberal, basically, you know, it's hard for an old person to change. But, you know, a lot of people don't really grasp in that generation, you know, that college was free for them. <laughs> or very cheap, you know, yeah. and I want to tell the young people Reagan that. was the guy who, you know, was the first person to initiate tuition at the University of California. Right. Right. Uh, and that built the that was one of the factors that built the middle class. Right. California became the fourth biggest economy in the world because of free college. Right. So, no, no, I think, and I just think, I just think the more encouragement that voters, people can give the Biden administration to do these things, um, that will help people that will help young people that will help women so they can be paid the same as men that, you know, just go down the list of things. Paid family leave, right? Daycare. And I believe, like you said, the ones that are on the margins who are Trump supporters, maybe not supporters, even they voted for him. That you that if there's 15 million to peel off the 15 million who believe that Biden is actually the president of the United States, yeah, that you know we can start there somehow. Maybe I mean it's like we don't need them. We are the majority, and we will now be the majority. You know, it's been a and it's it's been a, a steady climb from Gore winning the popular vote by 500,000 votes, half a million, seven million votes to the to well and yes and Hillary at yeah. one by three million. Million. And now Biden winning by 7 million. And I, you know, and I'm sorry to people or Republicans who might be listening to this, but uh, in, in four years in, in the 2024 election, the Democrats, you know, more than likely uh, should be able to win, not, not just by 7 million popular votes by 10 or more million. Uh, right. That's just the demographics of where it's going. It's, it's and again, uh, going back to even the 19th century. It was like the, the South, the slave South was, you know, in the toilet because they had exhausted their soil. They had no economic you know, room to grow. And then they started expanding westward and cheating, right? Trying to invent new states, new electoral votes, right? And uh, it's the same old story. We are the majority. You know, we, you know, we, we love our fellow Americans, right? We're perfectly willing to, you know, extend the hand of hospitality to the folks, folks who are suffering in Texas, you know, unlike the, you know, what they did, you know, during Superstorm Sandy to the Northeast. But, you know, we were the majority. We are the majority. Right. And, you know, democracy, to the extent that it prevails in America, and, you know, there's lots of 
things we can do to kind of make the country more democratic. We can turn D.C. and Puerto Rico into states. You know, we can end the filibuster. Um, but, you know, watch what happens once America, you know, basically the will of the people starts being respected. Right, right. And 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 you're optimistic about those things too, right? Thing like you mentioned, D.C. statehood or Puerto yeah, Rico yeah. or whatever. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it was, it was just to see something like that being discussed among the establishment of the Democratic Party that was terrified that, you know, somehow, you know, the late David Broders of the world would somehow, you know, kind of call fouls on them. Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty impressed by how, even by how the media was willing to use the word, the L word when it, you know, when we're finally, yes, a lie. Yeah. Yes. I don't think, I think at a certain point in, I don't know whether it was in 2019 or whenever the Washington post started counting the lies, uh, they decided they knew how they were going to be judged by history if they did not. Right. Actually, you know, tell maybe the first lined up against the wall and shot if these people really took over and got their will. Oh, well, look at, yeah, they set fire to their equipment there on the steps of the Capitol. There you go. I mean, they were, yes, it's, um, boy, that one guy too, the footage of the one guy, the, 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 um, you know, one of the people who stormed the Capitol. And when he saw that they weren't going to get much further, the senators had gotten out of there, they weren't going to be able to kill Pelosi. Uh, he was so dejected. I don't know if you saw this one tape and he's just shaking his head. He's so bummed out and he just looks into the camera. And he says, why didn't we bring our 30,000 guns? We well, should have, have we should have had 30,000 guns here. And you know, I thought you're right, dude. Yeah. And they, a lot of them must be thinking that, that had it's they only clarifying. people are starting to get it right. Wow, we lucked it, out, man. On some level, we really lucked out. We really lucked out, but the, you know the, the 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 story I've been telling about you know the basically insurrectionist mentality, the eliminationist mentality of people on the right, it's it's it, it, it it's working its way into the mainstream, and uh, that's that's pretty encouraging. Yeah, yes, it is. Uh, it is encouraging, and you're right about young people; they get it, and they don't like clowns. You know, they don't unless like funny clowns unless they're, yes, they don't like scary clowns. Yeah. And, and a lot of, a lot of parents of the millennials learned over the years, bringing the clown to the birthday party was not necessarily the best idea. Red Skelton. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, 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 what's the guy? A Joker from Batman. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. <laughs> hey, Rick, if you don't mind, I, I just want to uh, take a second here to, thank and acknowledge the underwriters uh, for today's uh, episode of Rumble. Well, first of all, we have a brand new underwriter, Neon, and their outstanding new documentary film, Noturno. If you haven't seen this film, oh my God, I'm going I'm to help you watch it here in a minute. But Neon, the film distributor, they've been distributing some wonderful films over the past few years, especially nonfiction films. And Noturno is their latest. And I got to tell you, you have to check out this film. It was directed and uh, written by the Italian filmmaker, Gene Franco Rossi. He previously made the Oscar nominated Fire at Sea. But Noturno, this new one, it was filmed over three years on the borders between Iraq, Kurdistan, Syria, and Lebanon. And I got to tell you, it captures the everyday life that lies in the aftermath of tyranny and invasions, and terrorism. Here's some of the words that critics have used to describe Noturno. Hypnotic, devastating and surprisingly delicate, impossible to look away, great beauty, and a human vision of profound empathy. My friends, you will love this documentary. It won three awards at the Venice Film Festival. It's also played at the Toronto Film Festival, the New York Film Festival, Telluride, and it was just shortlisted as one of the 15 contenders for Best Documentary for an Academy Award nomination. Now, you can watch Noturno right now on Hulu, and it's also available on other digital platforms. So I'm putting a link right here on my podcast uh, description page where you can just click on that link, go to Hulu, but whatever it is, see this movie, please. And I want to thank personally Neon for supporting this podcast and, of course, for supporting uh, my voice and for supporting the work of documentary filmmakers like the talented Gianfranco Rossi, the director of Noturno. Also, another great 
underwriter that I want to welcome back to Rumble for supporting me here, Audible. Audible, as I'm sure most of you know, they're the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. Here's the great thing about Audible. You can find not only the largest selection of audiobooks, they also carry original entertainment. They have thousands of popular and binge-worthy podcasts, including Rumble with Michael Moore. But they they have like one-person shows, uh, one that I attended in their theater. Audible actually has an actual theater where they do performances and shows and where they record Audible broadcasts. So I was there for Tom Morello at the Manetta Lane Theater, speaking truth to power through stories and song. That was a great night. Basil was there too. If you get a chance to go on, get that from Audible, man, it's really it's very cool. Also, Bob Dylan Chronicles, narrated by Sean Penn. My okay, I'm going to just tell you right now, it is that is my favorite audiobook of all time. Sean Penn channeling Bob Dylan, actually reading Bob Dylan's words in Bob Dylan's first part of his autobiography called Chronicles. Man, if you have not heard that, it's just one of it's one of the it's a great book written by Dylan and it's a great read by Sean Penn. Audible also has the autobiography of Malcolm X narrated by Lawrence Fishburne. And it has my book, my sort of autobiography called Here Comes Trouble, Stories from My Life. So you can you can pick up that. It's maybe my, I don't know, all my books is probably my favorite because I got to write 24 short stories based on incidents and things that happened in my life. And it was such a, it was such a fun ride to write that and to have so many people read it. So for listeners of this Rumble podcast, you can try Audible for free for 30 days. Just go to audible.com slash rumble or text rumble, R-U-M-B-L-E, text rumble to 500-500. That's it. Audible.com slash rumble or text rumble to their number 500-500 and you'll get a free 30-day trial of Audible. And I want to thank again, Audible, for supporting my voice and for supporting this podcast. You know, you point out here and you, uh, I think you wrote this recently, it might've been in the Washington post op-ed where, um, that this, that we, that we shouldn't be paralyzed by the violence that we've seen that, um, or to, to think that we're, we're completely in the toilet here. Um, that in fact, a lot of times when conservatives, right wingers, um, white supremacists, they're acting out, uh, yeah. they're not so much out of, uh, strength, but something else. Can you just get into that a little bit? Yeah. I think it's the metaphor of the cornered rat, right? They're the most dangerous, but you know, we're dealing with a media environment, right? And to, you know, to take it back in history, it was the violence against, you know, children, you know, in Birmingham in 1963 that inspired John F. Kennedy to introduce the Civil Rights Act, right? Hmm. It was the violence at Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965, you know, pe- beating up people like John Lewis, you know, people who are completely committed to nonviolence that led to Lyndon Johnson embracing the Voting Rights Act, right? And in a media environment, you know, once you resort to violence, you've lost, right? You've lost in the court of public opinion. And I think that's what we saw on January 6th. You know, I think there, I think, you know, people are beginning to, you know, cancel their Republican registration. I don't think we've really seen the full resonance of this. But, you know, the fact of the matter is most Americans, you know, don't want to be part of a violent insurrectionist movement, you know? It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. And uh, I don't want to say that, you know, we should be glad that it happened, right? But uh, it's a lot easier to kind of make the moral point that you're the good guys when the bad guys are the people with, you know, who are beating up cops and even murdering cops, right? Uh, So uh, I think we may be seeing the embers of a dying regime. Mm. But again, that that's not a that's a reason for vigilance. That's a reason for working harder, not you know, kind of pulling back. Right, because it's not dead yet. It's it's still very much alive, and you know this. And for those Democrats, the the Joe Manchin types, oh my God. Uh, who want to be quote moderate, 
or centrist. Yeah, there's, um, there's only two sides to this. There's only two sides to this, my friends. You know, um, it's it's because I, I I think maybe I mean you sort of pointed this out um, that sometimes by or I'll just put it into my words, trying to meet halfway with people like this, people who are trying to kill you, yeah, winds up with you dead. <laughs> <laughs> I bit. mean. You know, hey, just meet me in the center of the road and you get to the center and then that's the end of you. Um, it's, it, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, met the devil at the crossroads, right? It wasn't like, you know, at the end of the street, it was in the middle of the street. In the middle of the, that's right. But I just, I think that this is, this, uh, it's so important and it's, it's kind of like, you know, this violence and this acting out, as, as you called it, it gives a, a clear signal to the corporate media and to the centrists. That their instinct towards coming together right. and meeting halfway. Well, it must, are, you must, have been, yeah, you must have been really interested to see these corporations kind of pull their donations from from yeah. people who are you know on the wrong side of this, right? Yeah. It's like you know, corporate America wants stability. You know, they want a stable investment climate, and you know, they don't want to be involved in anything that was extremist. They were willing to go along with it, you know, until you know the people pulled the guns on cops, you know. A lot of corporate America is so angry at Trump and these Republicans right now because they, they, by Trump calling COVID-19 a hoax, by not doing anything about it. And then, and then finally, when we, the scientists are able to develop these vaccines, no system set up so that the vaccine can get into the arm. And, and if, if, if in corporate America's eyes, their customers are dying, they're being killed. Yeah. By these po- Republican Party policies, I, yeah. I know that it's going to seem like very strange bedfellows, but um, it's it. Uh, I, I, I happened before, right? Our friends at General Motors, right? The, the the Treaty of Detroit. You know, they were the ones who decided that they were going to give health insurance to the workers because the workers were like, "We're going to shut it down if you don't." Right? So right. you know, we're willing to have them in our coalition as long as they, you know, basically play by our, you know, rules. Right. No, I know, and it's. I mean, I grew up in a home, the factory worker father, and we had European health insurance because of the union and the, and the, and forcing the car companies to give into this. And so, man, there were no copays. There were no deductibles. Our, our, our dads and our moms who worked at the factory, they had a four week paid vacation in the summer, two weeks at Christmas, and, and then another week, uh, what they called model changeover. Uh, I mean, they were, they, and they were paid during these weeks or months. How were the, um, how were the corporate profits, Michael? Through the roof. Through the roof. Exactly. Even when I, even when I made my first film on G, GM and Flint, Roger, me, they, they, the corporate profits that you were, for, which were great for them, $4 billion yeah. when, when they were laying off another 30,000 people. Um, and, and, you know, of course their short-sightedness was, you know, who they were laying off here. Somebody should have said in the boardroom, we're laying off the people that buy the cars. <laughs> might be that a good idea to keep them working. Dollars a day. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> pay people enough to buy our cars. You know, maybe they're getting, maybe they're getting the message, you know? So what do you hope that Biden and his people will continue to, to do here? I, 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 I hope that they um, use all the power, vast powers of the federal government to govern compassionately and well in the interests of the, vast majority of the American people specifically. I really, yes, I really hope they um, managed to um, change their mind on uh, forgiving student debt because um, that's, that, 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 that's a win-win for everybody mm-hmm. uh, except for the people who, you know, own banks and they're doing fine. They're doing great. Don't exactly. worry about them. Okay. Yeah. They'll be good. Hey, I'd like to, con- I'd like to, I'd like to conclude by, I want to read uh, the final sentences of this piece you wrote here recently. Uh, Because I thought you really summed this up very nicely. You wrote, this year, neither the most frantic conspiracy theories imaginable, nor a fresh new outbreak of 1950s vintage electoral college chicanery were enough for the political wing to prevail. One of America's founding traditions, however, does endure. A rump reactionary minority insisting that the nation is nonetheless theirs to rule by right. Their politicians having failed them, it should be no wonder 
their paramilitary wing charged into the Capitol behind a Confederate flag to finish the job. Wow. That is so beautifully written, and it acts as both. It's both an optimistic take on how we can deal with this, but it's also a warning that democracy is fragile. Yeah. And um, and this this kind of behavior must be met. The fact that the Confederate Army, Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis and all of them, for four long years could not get that flag across the Potomac River and into the United States Capitol in the way that the insurrectionists did on January 6th where they walked through there with that Confederate flag, finishing, trying to finish the job that the Confederacy had started some um, hundred and, and um, sixty years ago. It was it was one of the saddest sights uh, to see that guy with that flag mm. going through the building and not wanting to believe that the Confederacy is ever going to win that I know the country I live in and I know the majority of its people are not that way. And so if we choose to not be silent, if we choose to involve ourselves, engage in our democratic uh, processes, uh, we shall overcome. We will overcome. And we have overcome on many levels over and over and over again, only to find out that the job isn't done yet. And, um, I think, and I just, I personally want to thank you for these books that you've written about America in the modern conservative movement and understanding it from Goldwater through, I mean, just four years after Goldwater, Nixon and his people, they figured it out. They got elected in 68. Twelve years later, Reagan is elected. And then we have been living with uh, his economic vision of, of, of working people in the middle class being squeezed and, um, and, and people of color, uh, never getting off the bottom rungs of the economic ladder. I think a lot of people listening to this, we want this to change. And, and now that, like I said, we have the ball, we have the ball. Let's like, let's run, let's go for it. Let's do it now. As, as you know, Biden's been saying, let's go big, you know, or his other favorite saying of mine, Come on, man. <laughs> I love that. Come on, man. <laughs> but Rick, I mean, thank you for all your all your good work and um in 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 helping us understand the moment we're in right now. What I mean, I would think if I were a historian, uh it wouldn't be good enough for me just to talk about the past. It's that it's that connective tissue that takes us to what what we're dealing with right now. And, that, and you've done that so well. And I thank you for that. And I hope you come back on Rumble here another time uh, to discuss what's going on. Anytime, dear brother. Thank you. Thank you. Spoken, those words spoken by a man born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So <laughs> there's, <laughs> we live on the same lake. Um, but, um, and it's a great, and it's a yes. <laughs> It is a great lake, but, but, uh, but for all the people and, and the people who write me and the people who live and are, who are still struggling, who live from paycheck to paycheck, this is our moment, my friends, this is our moment to fix so much of this and we can do this. And I, I don't want you to give up. I don't want you going to bed tonight with this sense of despair. Yes. It's a bit scary. Yes. It's, it's hard. But look what we've done just in the last three or four months. Come on. Come on, man. <laughs> Rick Perlstein, his current book is called Reagan Land. And uh, I encourage you to pick up a copy of it. And uh, you can get it actually at our little bookstore here on my on my website. We're featuring it on our podcast page today. So uh, just click on there and, and get this wonderful, uh, insightful book by Rick Perlstein. Rick, thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. And thank you, all of you who have listened to Rumble this episode. As I said, there's a lot of work to be done. We'll be talking about it. I'll be uh, talking to you again uh, later this week. To all of you who are doing what you can do to help change things right now, I personally thank you. Uh, 
great deal. My thanks also to Basil Hamden, our executive producer, uh, Nick Quaz, our uh, editor, and to everybody else who helps me uh, with this podcast. It means a great deal to me, and uh, I'll be talking to all of you very, very soon here on Rumble. But my city was gone There was no train station There was no downtown So town had disappeared All my favorite places My city had been pulled down Reduced to walking Hey, oh, where to go, Ohio?